Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Uh, hello, this is Perry Marshall, and I'm here with Dennis Noble, and uh, it's a real privilege to have Dennis here. Um, Dennis is one of the most eminent scientists in the UK. Um, he's on the Evolution 2.0 judging panel for the prize, and uh, he organized a very, very important meeting at the Royal Society in 2016, which was probably the most revolutionary evolution meeting, um, certainly in the last couple of decades, if not longer. And I was there, and uh, I kind of felt like Forrest Gump, um, you know, witnessing history uh, when it was happening there. And I wanted to get Dennis on the line here um, because uh, he's published a very interesting paper um, in physiology um, uh, science journal um, uh, called Central Dogma or Central Debate. We'll probably talk about that paper a little bit um, today. But I, I wanted to introduce you to, to Dennis and, uh, and have him share his thoughts with you. And just, just a little bit more about Dennis. Um, Dennis is known around the world as being the guy who figured out the cardiac rhythm which made pacemakers possible. And uh, he, he was the first human to model a human organ on a computer, which he did on punch cards at University College London in the basement of a lab in 1960. So that's, I, well, I just think that's pretty interesting. He's also a very active musician, and he founded uh, something called Voices from Oxford, which is a video interview series that Oxford University has, a professor at Oxford for pretty much all of his career. So very distinguished scientist, very important voice in the evolution um, in, in, in the new evolution that's happening now. And so, Dennis, welcome. I'm glad well, to have you here today. Well, thank you very much, Perry. I, my ears are already ringing, or my face is blushing, whichever you want to say. But thanks for that introduction. Well, what, what I... So, so, I'm not very much not an evolutionary biologist, and you're not an evolutionary biologist either. You're a physiologist. Um, but, but what I could observe um, as an entrepreneur, as a consultant, is that almost all reformations of industries come from the outside. Um, Martin Luther was not a Catholic priest, and Bill Gates was not a mainframe computer guy. And Larry and Sergey, who started Google, were not search engine guys. And, 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 and the guy who started Federal Express was not a shipping industry guy. And I mean, you can go, you can go a, a long list of, of, of revolutions that have happened in various fields. And, and it's almost always the outsiders who say, hey, wait a minute, 
you know, we're really missing something here. And you're a physiologist. And for a very long time, um, you have felt, hey, guys, we are missing some something here. And, and there are things here that you're saying are true that cannot possibly be true. Because I know that I know that I know this because I'm a physiologist. And Dennis, I would like you to just, as, however you wish to, can you take us inside the mind and the skin and, you know, the shoes of a physiologist um, and help us understand, well, what is a physiologist? Maybe not everybody exactly knows. And, and just kind of tell us how you, you kind of stumbled into this. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. like you started out with a plan, but, but uh, tell, me, tell me about that, Dennis. Absolutely right, Perry. Um, the way in which I got onto the issue goes back to a period during the 1980s when we were working out the more complete details than I could do in 1960 of how the heart's pacemaker works. And we found something quite extraordinary, which is that it seems initially to be unnecessarily complicated. In fact, I remember people asking that kind of question as I lectured on what we were finding, one mechanism after another. But the point made was, but you only need one of these. Then we did a very interesting experiment, both in terms of using a drug to do the actual experiment on the heart, but also to run the computer model, which was this. Take one of those mechanisms out. On a computer model, you can do that easily. You could do it with a drug to knock out a particular mechanism. Hmm. We did that with a mechanism that was contributing 80% of the functionality. It made only a 15% difference to the frequency of the heart if you take it out. Now, Hmm. to an engineer like you, and to a physiologist, because in a sense, a physiologist is an engineer of the body. Yeah. A physiologist like me, that said the following. First, if you do gene knockouts, you do not necessarily get a good quantitative estimate of the function. The difference between 15% and 80% is, well, even <laughs> for a biologist, that's, yeah. that's pretty big, pretty bad, in fact. Now, the story doesn't end there because actually the the pacemaker of the heart is backed up, as we would say, in a number of ways, not just two. So I then thought about that and I asked myself the question, if you can't actually relate genes to function by doing knockouts, what are we doing? Now, I'm not saying that knockouts never reveal function. Of course, you get spectacular Uh, cases where with rare genetic diseases, a particular change will make a disastrous consequence for the person concerned. But what do we find generally? What have people found with all the genome-wide association studies that are going on now? There are so many genes involved, exactly as in the cardiac pacemaker, that what is happening is that nature has created robustness. So you have so many mechanisms involved that you have to ask the question why are they involved they're there to make the system robust to make it safe 
just as you have a double control system on an aircraft. But then you move further on, you see, you ask the question, does that mean that the control networks lying, if you like, above the genome are really dictating what the genome does? And I think that's the right way around to think about it. But once you start going down that road, you start questioning the very basis of all gene-centric theories of evolution, including, notably, uh, notably of course, including the, the selfish gene itself. Well, so let me, let me feed back to you what you said in yes, engineer sure. language, right? Sure. So, so, you know, I have a digital watch here, you know, it's, it's analog hands, but it's electronics inside. It's got a quartz crystal and the crystal vibrates, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, and a little um, circuit divides up the vibrations and, and sets the pulse of the watch. And so the, the second hand ticks each second. And, and what, what I think you are saying is that people initially said, well, I just figure the heart has a little quartz crystal, so to speak, exactly. and, then, yeah. and then it gets subdivided, and then the heart beats, and, and then, oh my goodness, it turns out, well, there's another quartz crystal, and there's another one, and there's another one, and when I take out one of them, I don't get an 80% change, I only get a 15% change, so they're actually redundant, okay, yeah. but, but then fine. furthermore, furthermore, what you begin to suspect was that there was a mutual, almost circular relationship between the mechanisms and the genes that code for it, not a one-way, like right. it wasn't just gene to quartz crystal, it was, the, but each affects the other. Exactly Am I so. correct? Yes, and moreover, for quite a long time, the network, which is producing the rhythm can function whether or not the genome is there. Wait, okay, wait a minute. Okay, that's interesting. So you can because take you out the genome? Yes, the genome is required only when the cell wants to make more protein. That's an absolutely crucial point. This applies generally. There are mechanisms in the body that enable us to know, or the body to know, when it hasn't got enough calcium transporter protein or muscle contracting protein, and it goes and tells the genome to do so. You see, the direction of causality, I think we have got it usually the wrong way round. It's actually the networks and the cell and the tissues and the organs that tell the genome how much to make of each protein. Now that leads on to a very clear understanding of why a liver cell, a heart cell, a bone cell, and so on, are all very, very different in terms of the proteins that they contain. But they use exactly the same genome. What's telling the genome to make a bone cell, a liver cell, heart cell, is the cell itself. So the causality is that way round. Well, this is, what you're describing is a complete total conceptual change from the way most people have been talking about genes and evolution yes. for a hundred years. Well, certainly since Weissman uh, came up 
about 130 years ago with the idea of his barrier, that is, there was no connection between the soma changes, that is, the body changes, and the so-called germline, that is, the sperm and egg. Um, so it really goes way, way back, and that incidentally, of course, was the foundation of what's called the modern synthesis, which is the standard theory uh, of evolution. So challenging that, and challenging in particular the misconception that the central dogma of molecular biology, which is that you go from genes to, uh, that is, DNA, to RNA, to protein, but never the other way around, challenging that is to challenge the very basis of the modern synthesis of evolutionary biology. So I think it is fundamental. It's not just a minor change, it's a major one. Well, when I began investigating evolution, I concluded, yes, evolution did happen, but there's no way the normal explanation could possibly be correct. And I, I came to that conclusion as an engineer because what they were telling me in biology, I had never encountered in engineering school. And I, most people following that line of reasoning would have just become some flavor of creationist. But I said, no, I think there's something more going on here. And what I found was, no, that actually the cells change the genes. Now, can you give a couple of examples of where we have clearly documented that the cell modifies the genome and it's not just the genome building the cell? Right. Because I think so, we have to be very clear about this, otherwise we can't move forward. Absolutely so. Well, of course, the, the classic example of that is the immune system. You see, we um, can resist an absolutely fantastic number of different invaders, viruses, bacteria, and other foreign bodies invading our body because we have the ability to make vastly more keys to fit the lock. Imagine the invader is a bit like a lock, and you've got to get a key to it to, to as it were, neutralize it. Now, we can make many, many more of those than could ever have been put into the genome as sequences. How do we do it? The organism effectively has a feedback mechanism which operates when a foreign body arrives which it has not met before. And it says to the genome, please mutate at a very high speed. Now, don't mutate everywhere, that would be disastrous. It does so in a pinpoint fashion. It goes straight for the variable bit of the protein that it has to make in order to fit that lock. And then it creates absolutely millions of different new keys. It finds one that works and it says to those cells, reproduce, the rest die. So we already have an example of that mechanism. Moreover, if you ask the question, what's happening to those bacteria that are now evolving very quickly to resist antibiotics, they've got the same mechanism. We call it hypermutation. That is the cell effectively, or a population of cells, because it's obviously not a single cell that does that. It's a population of cells in the case of the bacteria, a 
tissue or organ of the body in the case that is the immune system in the case of our bodies that says to the genome, please do the following. We now know as physiologists exactly how that can work too, because we can show the mechanisms by which an event right up at the surface of the cell can be transmitted all the way down into the nucleus where the genome is, and to target that in a specific way, in the case of the immune system, to say, please mutate this bit very rapidly. In the case of the bacteria, doing the same thing to its genome, knowing it's got to find, as a population, a solution to the challenge of a new antibiotic. And is it the case that that cell can now transmit the immunity to its progeny? Yes, exactly, because that's why, the, in the case of the immune system, that's precisely why the body tells those cells to reproduce. It tells the rest to die. Mm -hmm. There's a specific process which we happen to call apoptosis, but that's just a nice Greek word, <laughs> which means, in effect, kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it, it's remarkable, and it's so effective, because, you see, the, the, as I said at the beginning of this part of our discussion, the total number of new, challenging invaders that we could encounter is vastly greater than could ever be encoded by our genome. Now, the obvious question about that, though, is this. Could that be passed on to subsequent generations? In the case of the immune system, the answer is no. Each generation has to start off with its immune system, with the number of different locks and keys that it's already got, and then, as it were, learn again. So in that case, that is not passed on but many other things are passed on. And what we've discovered is that there are many particles in the sperm line and in the egg line, which enable what we call paternal and maternal effects to be transmitted down through the generations. Again, as a physiologist, we all find this very straightforward. I tell you, Perry, in my field of physiology, internationally, I find very little opposition to the ideas that I'm expressing. Everything I've told you, uh, in this little discussion would be regarded by most physiologists as damned obvious. What's the, what's the <laughs> argument about? Right. <laughs> yes, right. But, exactly. but it, it, it's met with hostility in a, by in evolutionary a, biologists. Well, in a, in a curious way, and I, I still don't really understand this. I mean, I, I've got here, you see, the issue of, of the Royal Society Journal, New Trends in Evolutionary Biology. Now, for many evolutionary biologists, what you might call standard evolutionary biologists, that was like a red rag to a bull. They didn't like it. Now, I just looked on the internet before our discussion. I find new trends in cardiology. It comes out every year. We, in, in physiology, we discuss new trends all the time. We welcome the new trends. So, what is going on? And I think what is going on is very interesting. The problem, I think, is that so much is at stake in relation to the arguments in evolution. It's an area which is hotly disputed, not just by scientists, but also by the general public, as we well know, of course, particularly in the United States. So, it's a very, very hot area. 
and big reputations are at stake. I feel that what is going on is that people are shifting the goalposts to avoid having to admit that some major assumptions in the original theory, as it was formulated to give us the modern synthesis, have in fact been shown to be wrong, simply. First one, the fact that it is possible for what we call changes in the body during life to be passed on to subsequent generations, that's been now shown in many, many different species, including the human. Point two, could it be the case that what we now call the central dogma of molecular biology, which is the point I made earlier on, the DNA creates an RNA that creates a protein, and it's only one way, could that now be, as it were, the defense of Weissmann's barrier, the original idea that the germline was carrying something which was not influenced by the rest of the body? The answer is there's no way in which that can be the case. Just to be technical for a moment, but I'll try and keep this simple. If I represented a molecule, let's say a bit of DNA, as the size of my fist here, I'm in Oxford in England. The edge of the cell that contains that molecule, that DNA, would be way up in Scotland. Mm. That's about 800 miles away. That's the difference of scale that we're dealing with. Now, the Weissmann barrier is about a cell. The central dogma is about a molecule, and there's no way in which those can be the same. Now, what Would I you, found... Can I, the, can I just try yeah. to maybe clarify what you just Please said? Do, yes. So, so yes. the central dogma, in its most simplest form, says you have a strand of DNA, and it gets transcribed into a protein, yeah. and proteins don't turn back into strands of DNA. That's right. That's the simplest version of what it's, that says. It's, it's a molecular coding mechanism, yes. And you agree with that. That is Absolutely. true. Yes, no problem. Proteins don't get turned back no. into DNA. <laughs> However, there's no a whole, no. <laughs> there's a higher level architecture question, which is, is DNA edited or rearranged by the cell? Yes or no? Uh, Weissman said, absolutely not. It only goes one way. You start with That's the right. genes and you build an organism. And what you started to discover in the 1980s and what has now been, become abundantly clear is genes are absolutely edited and changed by cells. And in some cases, not just your skin or your heart or your liver cells, genomes get changed, but it can actually yeah. go to the sperm and egg. That, that's right. And, now, and, let's be also, just to uh, clarify that, in, in case we've got some good molecular biologists listening to this who would want to say, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> what mm -hmm. do you mean by it being changed? A variety of ways are now known. One of those, of course, is the mechanism by which the genome, that is those sequences in the DNA, can be marked. We call that epigenetic change. There are other mechanisms too, but I don't want to complicate this. One will do. Those marks can go down through the germline. And that means that it's possible for changes that occur during the organism's lifetime to be transmitted down through 
the germline. So that's just one example of the kind of process I'm referring to. It's not that the cell has a, a sort of cell version of CRISPR, <laughs> this new technology enables you to cut and paste uh, DNA, which is being used to extraordinarily uh, important effects in modern biology. But it is the case that the cell can, through its experience, include information in what goes down through the germline that enables it to be the case that the DNA code in itself is not enough. So you wrote a book called um, Biological Relativity, um, and you, you wrote this paper that in the Physiology Journal that you, you tease out these distinctions between the Wiesman barrier, the central dogma, um, and, and you've, you've pointed out that from a system level point of view, this is a complete conceptual shift yeah, in how evolution right. works. It's a exactly radical, right. yeah. like you can't, this is as different as, it, well, it's as different as Catholic and Protestant, or it's as, yeah. it's as different as Newtonian mechanics versus quantum mechanics. Exactly. And so. you, you, you can't just say, oh, well, you know, that was always there and we just didn't talk about it enough. It's a complete reversal. It is a reversal. That's right. It is not just a minor uh, modification. Uh, now, I think there's a way of explaining that to your listeners and, 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 and watchers. If we transcribed on a keyboard what we're just saying, we would use a QWERTY keyboard. Now, the important thing to note is that it wouldn't matter if we used a different keyboard. The point mm. I'm making is, when I type my paper out on a keyboard, whatever keyboard, a QWERTY one, a French one, whatever it might be, um, it is not the case that the QWERTY keyboard is responsible for what is typed. I am. Mm. In a similar way, the cell is responsible for interpreting the genome and that code between the DNA and the protein, which is a very exciting discovery, no question about that in biology, is absolutely fundamental, I'm not challenging that at all. But it no more determines life than the QWERTY keyboard would determine what I would write if I write down what we're just discussing. Well, so now you're introducing the idea of the cell as an agent yes. of its own evolution. And organisms as agents of their own evolution, precisely. And of course, that smacks of another forbidden word, which is Lamarck. Now, this yes. gets into some um, history too. But don't let's worry too much about that. Uh, but it's another respect in which the agency is at higher levels than the gene. In fact, I would go further and say DNA on its own cannot have any agency. It is a passive molecule. If I took the DNA out of one of your cells and I put it in a Petri dish with as many nutrients as you like, give it glucose, give it goodness knows what, to keep it happy for 10,000 years, it would do absolutely zilch. So 
the agency has to be at a higher level. And again, I come back to what engineers and physiologists readily understand. The agency process lies in those interacting clever networks, not in a bunch of molecules. It lies in what we would call the software. And of course, it needs a hardware that's good enough for that software to be able to uh, be implemented. But clearly, the intelligence lies in the cleverness of those networks. Well, so this, so, so let's talk about, I think we've probably explained the basic science adequately. So tell me about the family dynamic, the politics, the profession. Um, you, you wanted to organize this meeting at the Royal Society. And you're a fellow of the Royal Society, and you're a very eminent scientist, and you have some clout. So what happened when you tried to do that? Well, first of all, I, I just wrote to the president. Of both, it was actually both the Royal Society and the British Academy. The British Academy is the humanities and social sciences. The Royal Society is what we call the, the hard sciences. Uh, yeah. I don't know whether that distinction is. Actually, I find the humanities pretty hard, but that's another <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's a whole other conversation, isn't it? Well, yeah. I play music, you see, as well. Um, anyway, the the fact is that what what I did was very simply to write to the president of both of those societies and say that I thought that the implications of some of the new trends in evolution biology were of much greater importance than just in biology. It relates to economics. You know, the equations that people use in economics, they're the same equations, the price equation and things like that, as are used in evolutionary biology. It relates to economics for another reason, too, which is that a lot of economic theory uh, centers on things like selfishness and cooperation and what's the balance between the two. If you start to question some of the uh, basis of uh, for example, selfish gene theory, then my goodness, yes, you have implications way outside uh, the realm of biology. So that's why I wrote to both the president of the British Academy and the president of the Royal Society. They simply responded saying, sounds a good idea, put it to our committee. In each case, the committee has passed it. No problem at all. Hmm. And it got to the point of advertising the meeting, which occurred uh, towards the beginning of 2016. And that was the point at which a large number of evolutionary biologists thought this didn't sound a good, good idea at all. Hmm. Now, I, I think the intent there was clearly to stop the meeting or to get it transformed in uh, one way or another. Um, Probably they had not really thought through the care and carefulness with which I had worked with four other collaborators in putting the meeting together with consultation widely around the world to try to produce a good program. Moreover, we tried to produce a balanced program because we actually invited several of the orthodox, if you might want to call them that, evolutionary biologists to talk. Only one of our original invitees actually agreed initially. Hmm. He had to, he had to appeal to the Royal Society to try to convince more than one to come. 
Now, what did they do at the meeting itself? What they said in effect was, well, we've known all this for a long time. You produce the question of, can the organism, be it a plant or an animal or a human, alter its genome? Barbara McClintock showed that over 80 years ago, working on Indian corn and watching how the chromosomes changed as the corn was challenged in its environment. Jumping genes, as they were called, and the ability of cells, therefore, to signal to their genomes, what I was discussing earlier on about bacteria signaling to their genomes, our immune system signaling to our genome, to rearrange the genome, that's been known for a long time. Of course it has. But the point is that it's fundamentally incompatible with the central thesis, which is there's just random variation in the genome followed by natural selection, and that is all that is necessary. Now, I will say this, Perry, there are many evolutionary biologists whom I respect that have understood that there are major changes that have occurred. Many of them now, while claiming to be standard orthodox evolutionary biologists will say, okay, yes, we accept the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Well, my goodness, um, fine if they do. I don't have any quarrel with that, obviously. But that was the key difference between Darwin and Weissman. When Weissman introduced his barrier, he says so in his 1883 lecture, reproduced in a book published by the Oxford University Press at that time translated from the German into English, he says, Darwin included Lamarck's idea. My idea is that we can get rid of it. So it was an intention to get rid of that. So if you change the goalposts, as it were, and you redefine the theory to be something different from what it was originally, I think it's much more honest to say we've changed. And my goodness, what is, what is shameful about that? Nothing. Well, you know, if, if, I can, if I can just speak to that, I, I think it, there's a very subtle thing that is going on here, which is um, the old evolutionary theory that Wiesman espoused was very, very friendly and simpatico to a reductionist view of the Precisely. world You've got and to, to making it sound as though we have this all figured out. All figured out, yes. When, in fact... Really, if you if you look at how evolution works, the universe becomes much more amazing than you ever conceived it to be before. Exactly. It yes. shows that there's vast regions that we just have no idea how this stuff works. I I personally I don't know, I'd love to know what you think. My opinion is we understand about five percent of how evolution actually works in detail. I don't know. Would you have a number that you would throw out? Like how much you think we, uh, I'm just curious. Well, the trouble is of course, that evolution occurs normally over such a, a long time scale that any of our experiments um, have difficulty coping with that in any organisms other than the very tiniest of organisms, which of course is why much of the work that's done has been done on extremely simple organisms like uh, bacteria, or on the fruit fly and, and so on. Um, I wouldn't be able to put a percentage on, but I think we've got a long way to go. I'd agree with that. 
I think the difficulty is not so much identifying what the mechanisms are, in addition to the standard one of um, random variation in the genome and then uh, selection between the results of those random variations. There are so many other mechanisms that occur, including incidentally one that I'm very keen on, which is that the variation is not just the cause of differences between different organisms in the progeny on which natural selection can then act. It is also something which is used by organisms to create novelty. Now, come back to agency. Why have we got agency? I don't know whether that's the right way to put the question. But if we have agency, that's extremely important because that is what enables us to be creative. Whether it is as scientists, as uh, writers of literature, as musicians, or whatever it might be. You can't have a Beethoven without there being the possibility of doing something completely new from what anybody else had done previously. And you yes. can't have an Einstein if you stick with the idea that there can be no novelty. But how do you get novelty? You get novelty in exactly the same way, in an analogous way, that the immune system gets the novelty. It's got a new challenge. It needs a new key to that new lock. And it goes down into the stochastic level of the molecular processes and asks for the wheel to be turned very rapidly and to produce the answer. And I think that's what organisms do generally. There's the agency. That is what partly drives evolution. So it's interesting to ask the question as you did, <laughs> what percentage do we yet know? I think you're right, it's small, but there's a huge amount that we're going to have to look into in the future as we work out how the different mechanisms that could be involved have interacted with each other. That even includes the study of the icon of uh, Darwin's evolutionary theory, the birds and the tortoises in the Galapagos Islands. The birds have been studied. And the interesting thing is that there are as many epigenetic changes, that's those changes that have to do with changing the genome with genome marks, as there are genetic changes. The people who studied that simply come to the conclusion that probably both processes, the epigenetic and the genetic, have occurred together. And the one naturally leads to changes in the other. These processes therefore interact, and we're very, very far from understanding all the details of how they interact. And incidentally, for young scientists listening to this, it's an area to get into. You know, the frontier yes. of biology is here. That's where it is. And the frontier lies not in making more discoveries at a molecular biological level, though, my goodness, we do need those. I'm not against the molecular biological discoveries. They've been fantastic. It's largely going to be at the level of understanding those networks of interactions that lie above the genome and which give organisms agency and therefore the ability to choose. And the implications of that for history, for literature, for economics, for, I don't know, you name, name the area of human interest, it, it's, it's everywhere. Well, Dennis, you gave a talk in Oxford to a bunch of students, and you raised the question, 
of uh, what if someone committed a murder and his defense attorney used the selfish gene as a defense? Could you, could you um, elaborate? Could I don't want to, I don't want to steal your thunder. Could you tell, tell me what you said? You're too welcome to steal the thunder. Uh, what I did was to pretend to be, as it were, uh, on the one hand, a judge uh, judging this and also to be uh, the poor um, uh, uh, criminals, the, the what do we call the suspects? Yes, that's right. <laughs> I, I was also pretending to be the poor, poor suspect's lawyer, so I was playing two parts in the talk. And what I was saying was, you know, Your Honour, in, in, here in England, we call the judge Your Honour. Um, you know, my client says that he doesn't think he really did this murder. He doesn't challenge the fact that he did it in the sense that, yes, he, he used the gun that killed the uh, person that was murdered, but it wasn't him doing it because his nervous system was created by his genetic system, which means that he wasn't responsible. Now, we both know, of course, that no court of law anywhere in the world would accept that as a defense. Now, the question <laughs> is why? Actually, there was a court in the United States that did accept it for reducing the sentence. It didn't oh, dear. reverse the sentence, but it was used. I found this out after I gave this talk. Now, there are two reasons why we would never accept that as a defense. The first is that society would fall apart if we did. None of us are responsible for our actions. You know, that is not the way to create a working society. But the much more important point and the deep point is that we are active agents. We are responsible. And there can be no way in which our genes or our nerves made us do what we do. Now, that gets into some very deep issues of biology and its overlap with philosophy. But I think we can perhaps leave it there. That was, that was the speech I made, exactly. Well, this gives you an idea of what's at stake because there's a whole bunch, there's a whole um, posse of, of scientists and public figures like Sam Harris or Susan Blackmore, mm. I think Richard Dawkins, although I'm not sure, who believe... Well, Richard Dawkins said we are lumbering robots That's powered idea. by our genes, okay? Yeah. And I think that is a very disempowering view. Exactly. It's, con it's contrary to the axioms of every society and every civilization. Exactly. And, so, yeah. and, and I would just say, look, um, just because you can't explain agency doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And personally, I, I view organisms and, uh, and, and animals and humans as I, 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 they're, they're free to, uh, to a degree, to exactly. make choices. And, yeah. and this is why evolution happens. It's because we live in a, in a universe of free choices. And, 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 and if we, if we, it, I think it's really interesting to watch materialists try to carry this all the way to the extent. I mean, I, yes. I listened to an interview with Susan Blackmore and Jordan Peterson, and she was saying, no, I, I don't really have choices. I'm just a product of my biology. And he said, yes. he said to her, he said, um, well, if I, tr if I were to treat you that way, you would really resent it. 
Well, you know, well, people want to be treated as though they have choices. Well, indeed. But, you know, you can also de demonstrate it in another very simple way. And, in fact, Richard Dawkins himself showed this. He took a Shakespearean quote. It's from As You Like It. And it's simply the phrase. It's 28 letters long. Methinks it is like a weasel. Now, um, he asked the question... Very interesting question. How long would a monkey on a typewriter take to produce that phrase, just that 28 letters by chance? It's more than the whole, the billions of years of the existence of the universe. Mm -hmm. Now, then he went and I think spoiled his argument because he started to produce programs that would somehow get there much more quickly. We don't need to go into the detail of that. He was right with the first thing. And that's what he should have stuck with, which is that <laughs> it's impossible. Now, what evolutionary, standard evolutionary biologists would say, well, yes, but it is possible if it's just incremental. But there's a major difficulty with that. And I pointed this out in another article recently, which we called, uh, was the watchmaker blind, um, mm -hmm. to deliberately raise that question. Um, the problem is simply this, that if you think you could get there incrementally, for example, by holding every letter that the monkey had got right, and as it were, making the keyboard stick at that point, Mm -hmm. Of course, you get there much more quickly. In fact, uh, Richard calculated it would take only about 40 generations of typing away uh, to get there. But who is providing the information that tells the system that it's getting closer to the goal? Yes. That's yes. the problem. Now, I think there is something that is getting there, and it's you and me, and it's the other organisms. We have, as you say, agency, and they are therefore capable, for example, of choosing their mates. What does that do? Why do women look beautiful to men? And why do men look handsome to women? It's because we chose them that way, and we bred with them that way, and that's why they end up being as they are. I mean, it's so damn simple. Darwin knew this. He wrote a whole book on sexual selection. It's <laughs> organisms that do the selecting. My genes don't do that selection. My genes didn't love Susan, my wife. I did. Very simple. <laughs> Amen. Like, Absolutely preach it, brother. Yes. <laughs> well, so when, when we introduce agency to evolution, it completely I think it changes it. And I Everything. absolutely agree, and I think this is the fault line um, with the, the standard yeah. story. Reductionists don't like agency because it's very difficult for them. What you have to then admit is that the causation comes from a high level. That, of course, is, putting it simply, the whole idea of biological relativity, that causation can come from any level within the organism. And again, engineers don't have any difficulty with that. It, no. isn't the, no, it isn't no. your Mac or your PC that does everything that you make them do. It's you who types away on the QWERTY keyboard and whatever it might be to create the functionality and the great um, novelty that is in your computer. And so in a similar way, it's not difficult to understand that it's the higher level of the organisms that will determine what they do. 
And that's what we're talking about. That is agency. And then this, you bring up computers, which brings us right to the doorstep of the biggest question in AI, which is agency, right? Yeah. Right now, algorithms are just algorithms. I mean, even... Indeed, you don't know yeah. that Siri and Alexa are as dumb as a box of rocks. You only have to Indeed. talk to them for five yeah. minutes to figure that yeah. out, right? Yeah, but what would right. happen if they had agency? And well, so I, AI and evolution are they're they're converging together. Yes, yeah. and I would make the following prediction for it being uh, possible, which is that the AI people would have to reproduce what organisms do when they harness stochasticity. Because what do we do? Again, use the immune system as the model, but then it, you, can, you can transfer that to all aspects of uh, organism and human behavior. What it does, just to repeat, is to go down to that stochastic molecular level and turn the wheel of chance to produce trillions of possible solutions to, in the case of the immune system, how you produce a new antibody to, to deal with an invader. What do we do when we've got a problem? Just thinking of human choice when we're dealing with a difficult issue, we say, better sleep on that. What I think is going on is that we're then plumbing down into the stochastic level, wherever that might be, in neural discharge, in cellular activity, whatever it might be. And then we have some sort of a filter, which is the rationality filter. Does it fit or not? It's a bit like the immune system asking, is this key good to deal with this particular lock? But it's the same kind of thing. And I think the AI people will have to put in that kind of very clever use of stochasticity. Then I begin to believe that they might create intelligent forms, yeah. which are silicon rather than protein. I, I, I agree. So, so here you are in Oxford, and you, you did the Royal Society meeting, you've published, you know, is the blind maker, watchmaker the blind, watchmaker or does blind, she yeah. have one yeah. eye, which is a very interesting paper, right? You're, right. you're challenging the Wiesman barrier, and, you know, you've been reaching out to colleagues um, all around the world and, and in England. So what's... What's going on in these conversations that you're having? And, and you're, 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 wanting, you're wanting to debate the issues. What, what's going on? Yes, very, very willing indeed. But I'll, I'll tell you what I think is, is going on. Within my own church, if I might call it that. <laughs> the, of physiology. The physiologists, the biochemists, the, um, the, the pathologists, and the whole of the medical science community the great majority of what I'm saying, you know, they, they might say, well, Dennis, you're putting it in a funny way. I'm not used to that because that isn't what I read in my textbooks. Well, that's true. <laughs> but they generally won't disagree with what I'm saying. So there's a whole swathe of biological and physical science and mathematical scientists out there. I go and lecture to congresses all over the world in, in a whole range of such disciplines. The only time when I find any degree of resistance to what I'm saying is when I have a bunch of zoologists who've been taught the classical theory. And then they will say, well, Professor Noble, what new discovery have you made in evolutionary biology? 
which is a, a very nice challenge to be given because I then go through the story that I went through with you. I said, well, you know, I looked at the question of would a knockout tell you what the gene does? And then I say, just think that through. Once you've challenged whether there is a clear, simple relationship between the genes and the organism's function, you're undoing the basis of saying that it's all down there in the genome. And once you start questioning that, you find if you search enough, you will question much else beside. But that's the only kind of community in which I find a serious resistance to what I'm saying. But there is another thing I want to add. I've put out the challenge, the debate with me, it's not been replied to. Nobody has taken the trouble from the standard evolutionary biologists to review the new book that's now out for nearly two years in, for example, the New York Review of Books, London mm. Review of Books, or wherever you want to put a serious analysis. What is going on is interesting. It's as though there's a kind of silence out there. They've all as it were, disappeared. <laughs> I don't know where they are. And it, it's serious because, although I, I can't name names, I have been through the process of interacting with an organization that wanted to arrange a debate with me. Four major neo-Darwinists, in turn, turned it down for a variety of reasons. I don't really think they've got an answer. You see, if on the internet, as you'll find very easily by searching, you have a simple misunderstanding like that the Weissman barrier, which remember is about the germline cells, is now embodied in the central dogma of molecular biology, which remember is something about coding at the molecular level. If somebody can say that and think that that justifies the, the original theory, based on Weissman and then on its modern interpretations, then they've got a big problem because there's absolutely no way in which the Weissman barrier can be embodied by the central dogma of molecular biology. I'm not challenging the central dogma. I think it's absolutely correct as a coding mechanism. But coming back to the point I made about the QWERTY keyboard, that keyboard which is the CGAT code, which then gets typed away, as it were, by the molecular mechanisms in the cell to produce this protein or, or that protein, no more determines life than the QWERTY keyboard determined what I wrote in my articles. It's very simple, actually. There's nothing complex about the idea at all. So why people won't come out and debate it, I really don't know. Well, it, it seems pretty clear to me that when you when you realize that the cell and the organism control the changes of dna and that it's not just random and it's not just selection then a whole bunch of books a whole bunch of scientific papers and a whole bunch of careers become obsolete overnight I mean, to, to, just, to just come right out and say it. I mean, isn't that true, Dennis? It, it, yes, I think, it, I think it is. 
but it's a bit more insidious than that because of course uh, nobody's career is actually going to collapse. I mean, many of mm. the evolutionary biologists are actually doing damn good work. It's just mm. they interpret it within a theoretical structure that I think is faulty. Mm. But, I mean, they'll continue to do their epigenetics, they'll continue to do their field work, and, and so on. That, that's fine. But I think the insidious thing is that it teaches through the standard teaching process a theory which I think has got things upside down. That's well, I, the problem, and that's a mindset. It's, it's not so much, as it were, are the facts of epigenetics different? Of course they're not. Uh, are the facts of uh, genome reorganization in response to challenge any different? Um, all the way from Barbara McClintock to modern studies on hypermutation? Of course they're not. Those, those scientific facts are still the same. It's just the way in which you view it. But why is that important? We come back to the other thing we were discussing earlier on. It's important in economics, it's important in ethics, it's important in uh, legal processes, it's important in almost every walk of life. Because once you've accepted the determinist reductionist agenda, you have a very different view of the nature of humanity. That is what is at stake. It's the nature of humanity and of course, of monkeys, of cats, of dogs, of paramecium, and of viruses. <laughs> yes. Well, I think it's, it's very disempowering to say that I am a lumbering robot controlled Absolutely. by my genes. It is yes. very empowering to say you are an individual with agency and choice, and furthermore, your eating choices, your exercising choices, your moral choices, all of these things actually in some maybe small way, they even affect your children and your grandchildren exactly. genetically. So yes. at every yes. crossroads in life, you better make the right decision. I think that's tremendously exactly. empowering. Yes, I, I and, think that's absolutely right. Imagine a mother um, with uh, um, a pregnant mother with the child, as it were, slowly growing in the womb and realizes that what she eats what else she does, how much exercise she takes, and so on, will all have an influence on the health of that child in the future, and the health of the child, children of that child, and so on. There are beautiful studies of that. We call these the maternal effects in physiology. Nobody mm. in the world of physiology even has uh, questions whether those occur. It's just that you don't, it's not normally seen in the context of evolution, but it should be. You're right, it's empowering. And I think that's another reason why I find, in addition to the communities that I spoke about, the medical science communities, the uh, computer science communities, and so on, where I lecture and get very little resistance, there's another area, and that is the humanities. I talk a lot with people in the humanities and people who are interested in evolution from a humanities perspective. They also don't seriously challenge uh, the great majority of what I'm saying. Well, I want to commend you for your work. I, th I, I think it's very important that you're doing this. Um, it, as, as far as I can tell, you're, you're the most credentialed scientist who is challenging the or orthodox view. And, you know, look, people have been challenging this view for oh, a long time. Long Absolutely. time. Yes, but exactly. but what, what seems yeah. to be the case was nobody could really get away with 
uh, an ad hominem attack on you or, or say that you didn't okay. know what you were talking about or that you were a lousy scientist where other people, they, they could get away with saying that, but, but they couldn't say that about you. And so, and so it's, it seems that if nothing else, you've gotten them to quiet down quite a bit. I think they've had to go quiet because I don't think they know how to answer the basic argument. I would put out a very simple challenge. Anybody reading the little article, it's only three pages long, so you don't have to spend long reading it, which is um, central dogma or central debate. Mm. Anybody reading that who thinks there's something wrong in it, I would love to debate with them. There's the challenge. Fantastic. Well, I'll, well, I'll just personally invite Richard Dawkins, Jerry Coyne, Daniel Dennett, or Any in, anybody in that crowd. Um, yeah. Dennis would be happy to debate uh, well, with you folks. And I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure Dennis can arrange for, for the debate to be held in a perfectly um, yeah. large venue with, with crowds and cameras and everything. Indeed. And, and, you know, and Dennis, I know you, I, I know that if you're wrong about anything, you'd be, you'd welcome to be called out on it so you could be corrected. Exactly. If one's wrong, you just change your mind. You know, some really brilliant people change their minds. Jack Eccles, who got the Nobel Prize for his work on the nervous system, changed his mind critically uh, about the role of synapses. Um, mm. You can go through a large number of people who, through the observations they made, came to the conclusion they were wrong. If I'm wrong, I'd love to be shown to be wrong. That's the way science advances. Excellent. Well, I, I'd like to encourage our listeners and viewers to check out Dennis's book, Dance to the Tune of Life, Biological Relativity. Um, look at his lectures on YouTube. There's one on the Evolution 2 site that's really wonderful. Um, take a look at, at, at some of these papers. We'll, we'll include links to them. And Dennis, thank you for being a champion of, of self-corrective science and, so, um, yes. <laughs> you know, and truth-telling. And, and thanks yeah. for organizing the Royal Society meeting. Thanks for helping me the way that you helped me. And, uh, and I hope uh, everyone will, will, will lend a listening ear. Great. Harry, great talking to you. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0.